Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. You can't always get what you want. That's been especially true during these unpredictable times. Now, more than ever, there's something comforting about the familiar like a restaurant you can go to where you can order exactly what you want off the menu and are always greeted with a smile whenever you walk through the door. That's the experience of anyone who stops in for breakfast or lunch at Liz's Where Yat Diner, one of the happiest places north of Lake Pontchartrain. On this week's show, we speak with owner Liz Munson, who tells us about her special kind of hospitality, served up with a killer crab meat grilled cheese sandwich. Then, we learn about a crowd-pleasing muffaletta for sale in San Francisco, prepared each day by Peterson Harder. Though he's far from home, the New Orleans chef has developed a following by staying true to his culinary roots. And you can't make it as an entrepreneur unless you've got a good sense of what people want. We're joined by Alfonso Bolden, CEO of the Cajun Nation Cajun Seasoning Company. While there's no denying his food talents, Alfonso's true genius lies in knowing just when to trademark a name, which for him often precedes the product concept. We're giving people what they want on this week's Louisiana Eats. Everybody needs a little love sometimes, and there's one place on the North Shore where that love is served with every bite. Liz's Where Yat Diner in the heart of Old Mandeville is a colorfully decorated, feel-good breakfast and lunch spot that locals have been flocking to since 2009. From painting palm trees and peace signs on the wall to dressing servers in tie-dyed shirts, owner Liz Munson has done everything to make her restaurant a welcoming, happy place. We spoke with Liz to get the full story beginning with her first foray into the food biz. I am from New Orleans, Louisiana. I grew up in Lake Vista. Way back when um, I was uh, the age of 12, 13, 14, and I remember telling my parents I wanted a job. And they said, you want a job? I said, yes, I want to go work with some people. And they said, well, go, go find a job. Well, I went to Foxy Ball Snowball Stand. And I said, I want to make snowballs. So I had a job at Foxy Ball Snowball. And that's when I came home and I said, Mama and Daddy, I love working with the public. I went to college for six months. I came home and I worked. My dad said, you sure you want to work and not go to school? I said, nope, I want to go to work. 
And that's when I started in the retail industry and got all of my customer service from that. And I knew I loved the business and I knew what people wanted. And they wanted just back to basics food. And they needed a place to come to, to laugh and get love, feel the love. And that's really what my diner is all about. When you walk in the door at Where You At Diner, you know that you have arrived someplace. Let's talk about the ambiance there. It feels like you're at the beach. You walk (laughs) in and you feel like you're at the beach. I have signs all over the walls. um, Peace, love, and saints. Um, I'm all about a positive vibe in my building. I'm all about having fun. Have fun. Come and have breakfast, but have an experience with it. Rock on with the music. If you want to get up and dance, dance. You want to come in your pajamas? Come in your pajamas. I don't care. Just come in. Come in and get the love, baby. That's why I'm here. Yeah, and and, and where are you? You're at the where yet. Now, how at the where yet. <laughs> it seems like a no-brainer now that, of course, that's the name of the diner. But how did you come across that name? Well, you can tell I'm a little bit of a yet, huh? And... I didn't want to go Liz's cafe. I just, I knew I needed to get my personality in it. And all of a sudden I was like, where you at? I was like, wait a minute, Liz is where you at? Liz is where you at diner. I was like, there you go, that's the name. (laughs) And that's the truth. Well, I'd say that the diner part is almost a misnomer because your food is really elevated beyond what your usual diner experience is. It's authentic, it's real, and it's delicious. The debris Benedict, crab au gratin, things you wouldn't expect to see on a diner menu. I know. It, it, it really, the menu, I, I found my first menu when I opened up the other day, and wow, it was so tiny. It was so tiny and it just grew. And we do we did everything as specials and I could not take it off the menu. The customers would come back for it. If it wasn't back every day or every other day, it was every weekend. And it was like, okay, they would be upset. You, you took the debris brandy off, we loved it. Well, then it grew and it grew and that's how it really started growing. This all goes very simple. My motto is keep it simple, stupid. I literally will think of things. I will go to my chef and I'll say, put this together for me. And that is how we do it. And it's such yummy stuff. My goodness. How in the world can you explain an Oreo explosion waffle? It's the waffle with white chocolate chips, chocolate chips that's in the waffle. And then there's an Oreo sauce that they make with crushed Oreos in the cream. And they drizzle it all over it. Then they top it off with whipped cream and crushed Oreos. And after the kids eat it, they're like, wah! <laughs> How'd you come up with that one? They all did that. They all did in the back because they said, let's come up with some kind of Oreo waffle. That, that's been everybody being creative and it's a team and everybody having fun with things, you know, even through the hairy and the, the tough times, you know. You know, we can all come together at one and but we work together as a team and to me that's the most important thing for a restaurant to work out is there's no front of the house or back of the house we are a circle we are a team well 
you hit some bumps in the road. You were getting all this incredible national publicity, the attention from People Magazine and Travel and Leisure. You got a packed house. And then the thing that I think scares everybody happens, a fire. What happened? On Tuesday, June 11th, 2019, I got a phone call. I was actually sitting down at my diner with my insurance guy, and we literally were writing up the thing, and I forgot to check at home. I said, let me run right home, two minutes away. I got a phone call from one of my managers, Miss Liz, the diner's on fire. Got in my car, got up here, and the diner was on fire. I saw the smoke from uh, stop when I was at a traffic light and I just looked up in the ceiling. I saw a black smoke and I just said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Whatever it is, I'm coming back. I'm not finished yet. For two months, I couldn't stop crying because I realized I finally said, what is going on? And I realized how much these people, these customers of mine in this community loved me, supported me, they pulled me through. And when I realized that day in my backyard at my house going, what is going on? I've been crying for two months. I heard you missing your people. This is part of the deal. You're missing your people. And when we opened up our doors on September 23rd, you could not get in. <laughs> we, did a, we did a silent opening and all of a sudden, some friends at the bar were sitting there and we said, let's post it on Facebook. Well, they posted it on Facebook and all of a sudden I'm going, what is happening? Why are we so busy? I thought this was a soft opening and it just drove people kept coming in and we hadn't stopped. We have not stopped. And then COVID hit and the same thing. We haven't stopped. How, how has that worked out for you? How has that changed things? Well, you know, Poppy, I needed to get real creative real quick. On March 16th, I was actually in a meeting and I literally looked at the people I was in a meeting with and I said, you know what, this can wait. I got to go save my way yet. And I got I got signs in front of my restaurant. I got this place to drive through immediately and everybody's looking at me and I'm going, let's go. We got to do something. This is it. Tomorrow, drive through. Let's get all internet ordering right. And I had got... It was amazing. I didn't skip a beat. I mean, it took a couple of weeks to catch on, but it was like that community just kept coming around. And as long as I made myself aware, I had balloons, I had palm trees in pots to let everybody know I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> so that's where I'm at in there. You can't kill crab grass, Poppy. You know, you can't, you got to keep on rolling, baby. <laughs> Pick up the pieces and keep rolling. My goodness, Liz, you're open seven days a week. When do you get any rest? Well, I um, <laughs> do my best uh, to get the rest. Um, I do go home. I have a fabulous crew that backs me up. They do push me out of the building and say, okay, it's time for you to go. And it's time for you to try to go get some sleep and come back the next morning. That is really where I, I had to get an assistant to sort of direct me into um getting away from the building because I, I'm, I'm glued here and I, I do have to shut my eyes every now and then, you know, but um, it's so much more than a diner. It's about coming in here and feeling the love and feeling the kindness and trying to change the world one day at a time.
That was Liz Munson of Liz's Where Yet Diner on New Orleans North Shore in Mandeville. To learn more, visit Liz'sWhereYetDiner.com. Coming up next, we speak with Alfonso Bolden of Cajun Nation Cajun Seasoning, a company that trademarked its name before it had a concept to go with it. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. My name is Alfonso Bolden. I'm co-CEO of the Cajun Nation Cajun Seasoning Company based out of Lafayette, Louisiana. Whether you live in Lake Charles, New Orleans, or Opelousas, browse the spice aisle at your grocery store and you'll find a sea of seasonings, spices, and blends. Among them, there's one product that's designed to catch your eye, Cajun Nation Cajun Seasoning in a bright red can. Combining a knack for product promotion with an intense work ethic, over the years, co-CEOs and brothers Troy and Alfonso Bolden have transformed their Cajun Nation brand into a thriving business. Along with their signature Cajun seasoning, the company makes sauces and a seafood boil, all which can be found online and in stores across six states. Both Alfonso and his brother Troy attended and graduated from the University of New Orleans and would go on to build their careers in Lafayette. So uh, Troy's a registered nurse. He works at the VA, and he's also he also manages a, a hospital on weekend in Laplace. And uh, I'm a logistics manager at a global chemical plant in the area. But our passion has always been entrepreneurship. We have been business partners since pre-Katrina, because Troy used to live in uh, on the West Bank, and we started a clothing line in 04. Uh, we released it, uh, 
Then Katrina came. Then he relocated to Lafayette. And we just kept creating. One of the things we gathered out of this was the strength of a trademark. The strength of a trademark. And to get that trade, to secure that trademark. So every time we thought about something unique, we would secure it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we had intellectual property. <laughs> now, you skeptics out there might think that sounds like a backwards way to start a business. Come up with the name first, trademark it, then figure out what you're going to sell. But that's exactly what happened. Around eight years before the brothers began blending spices, they got their company name based off of a suggestion from Alfonso's wife, Deborah. It was inspired by the football team, the Ragin' Cajuns of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. In 2011, UL, the Ragin' Cajuns became real hot. They, they were winning everything. First time they'd done that in a long time, since Jake DeLong. And I'm sitting here one Saturday, my wife walks in. She knew we like, you know, these trademarks. And we had these clothing lines, Southern Bow, Friday, all this good stuff. She walked in. She was like, what you think about Cajun Nation? So it, it kind of stuck. That's when I called Troy. I said, what you think? Troy, he usually doesn't say too much. Next day, you know, he said, man, we trademarking that. We don't know we're going to do it yet. And what ended up happening, we trademarked it and we we're going to do some T-shirts. But at the same time, we formed two communities on Facebook where we just explained the Cajun culture, just from what we saw. And in a short time, we amassed between both pages almost 30,000 followers. If I would post a picture of some cracklings, 1,500 likes. It, got, it, it became a job. And I stopped. we just stopped doing it. We redirected it. Hanging on to the Cajun Nation trademark, Several years later, the two brothers invested in a brand new idea, once again given to them from Deborah, Alfonso's wife. Fast forward to 2019, my wife, she had a, a, an episode with her thyroid, so they had to remove them. And then she comes, she started working out again, and she was like, the doctor's saying, I need something low sodium. And she knows me. She said, so why don't you make a low sodium seasoning? You know, again, I called Troy. So we talking. I say, look, I'm going to go and do some research. So I started ordering seasonings from all over online, you know, like the raw seasonings, putting them together, mixing them up. We got the competitor seasoning, looking everybody. Okay. Contacted the blender. We came up with this blend. They blended it. And the whole premise, the whole strength behind it, that it was low sodium, no MSG, and it still tastes good. And it was like, we just merged the two. Cajun Nation seasoning. And what happened on my personal Facebook page, I got like five, almost 5,000 followers. And I posted on that. In the area we're from, St. Mary Parish, it just went ballistic. Everybody wanted Cajun Nation. And to this day, in those stores in Franklin and Baldwin, it just flies off the shelf. I mean, it's five. I need five cases. I need 10 cases. Product development and mastery of social media aside, the brothers focused a lot of their energies on branding, which is how they came up with those distinctive red cans. The business relationship that Troy and I, even though we brothers, have developed over those years, we kind of like freaking frack. We know how to play off each other. We, we, we know the strengths and weaknesses. Troy is straight business. You know, when I say straight business, it's like, 
that penny moved from here. We need to know why that penny moved, you know? I'm more like a free spirit. I'm, I'm like, I'm, a, I'm an artist by heart. I know how to paint. I just haven't painted in a long time. That's just the way my brain, I, I can come up with the concepts and all that kind of stuff. But Troy is the one that puts it together. And he really studied Coca-Cola and, and, and their customers. And a lot of that, not saying that's what's driving our success or our direction, but a lot is to see how they were able to get people to focus on their brains. And if you look at that can, I, I think there's some similarities. Troy designed that. And Troy's a psychiatric nurse. So he, he, he knows what's going on with the brain. Troy has been doing that for over 25 years. And he said, hey, the red is going to jump out. We want something, a, a logo that's simple and that's going to stand out. And believe it or not, that can is referred to as the red can. Go get the red can. <laughs> that's go, spelled G-E-A-U-X, of course one of their slogans. But my personal favorite? You bring the rice, we got the spice. Uh, it stands out and, and, and it's all about a tagline, you know, and, uh, you know, from going get the red can, like when the commercial first comes on, you know, go get the red can. You bring the rice, we got the spice, you know, it, it just flows. And yesterday I sent that commercial to Chris with uh, Rouse's. After that, hey, Alfonso, can y'all call me on Tuesday so we can discuss business? So it, it's those taglines, what we wanted to do, and again, uh, I commend Troy on that. Uh, you want things that's going to stick, you know, and it just stands out. That was Alfonso Bolden, co-owner of Cajun Nation Cajun Seasoning. Hi, my name is Peterson Harder. I run Sandy's SF here in San Francisco. Chef, bartender, surfer, and New Orleans native, Peterson Harder and I go way back. Long before he moved west and opened a popular sandwich pop-up in San Francisco, I've known him from birth as the youngest son of my very dear friend Lee Barnes. Many fellow New Orleanians will remember Lee Barnes Cooking School, which she opened in 1974, the first of its kind in the Crescent City. Peterson was just a little boy when Lee closed the school in 1989. She tragically died from a brain tumor a mere three years later at the age of 41. As an adult, Peterson was drawn into the food world just like his mom and launched his own cooking career right here in New Orleans. I did. I did. Yeah, she was the uh, she was the pathway for me. It, it took me until my 20s to finally realize that. But yeah, I, I followed her very large footsteps. After working at several local restaurants, including Vincent's, K. Paul's, and Stella, Peterson furthered his career with a degree from the Culinary Institute of America. As a student there, he took on several externships, working in some of the best restaurant kitchens across the U.S. Once he landed in San Francisco, 
he was seduced by the Bay Area's burgeoning food scene. I really love the city. I mean, just the restaurants that I've been able to work at, bartending at Monster Benjamin, and then went over to the Progress and was bartending there. That, I think, really changed the trajectory for me because just the cuisine itself, which is such an incredible cuisine, and like the environment was just one of the best environments I've ever worked in. It was just like such a great opportunity. And then it all just came crashing down. Peterson's career momentum came to a screeching halt as the COVID-19 pandemic found him restless and sheltering in place with his partner and fellow chef, Moni Frailing. So my partner, Moni, and I are not people that know how to sit around and just do nothing. <laughs> so we decided, like everybody else, uh, she wanted to start baking sourdough during the pandemic and decided to actually do this as a job. And so we started building it up and through Instagram, started building this business. Making sandwiches on a red wheat sourdough boule with a rotating spread and seasonal pickle, they called their pop-up Bread Spread Pickle. As the venture started taking off, their already tiny apartment began shrinking in size. It was rough. It definitely took over the majority of the space. Our kitchen was designed like a professional kitchen. We had storage in there. We had a prep table in there. And then our second bedroom was taken over. We had a bread table in there. We had a commercial refrigerator, dry storage. And I said, once it reaches into the bedroom, we're done. I was like, I'm over it. One of the more unusual features of Bread Spread Pickle was their impromptu takeout window, created by simply opening up the window of their San Francisco apartment. It was almost like a little Rapunzel. We would just like hand it down through the window. So people would come up and we would chat, keep our distance with the masks on. We had dog treats for all the dogs that would come up. And it was just, I mean, looking back, it was just such an incredible experience. And it could only be born out of a pandemic where it's just like, this is not normal circumstances. And so we took a really bad situation and tried to make the best of it. The spirit of innovation that helped Peterson create Bread Spread Pickle can also be found in his latest pop-up, Sandy's SF. The idea was born from an accidental excess of cauliflower and carrot jardinier. We had so much left over. We just, we just messed up our numbers and somehow had a ton left over. And me being from New Orleans, I looked at that and I was like, you know what? I know exactly what we can do with that. So I was like, let's make muffalata salad. And then I was just like, no, no, let's make muffaladas. I was like, let's just do it. Like, I haven't had a muffalata so long. So we ended up making a muffalata, selling it out of our window, and people loved it. Then the next week, did it again, and people loved it. And after that, someone from Eater actually reached out and said, hey, we see that you're doing muffaladas. We'd like to do an article. Where are you popping up? So we had to scramble and try to find a place to pop up out of. We were fortunate enough to do that, and that's kind of how Sandy's was started, is through the muffalata. In a nod to his new California roots and the vegetarian-influenced West Coast diet, Peterson also added his own spin on the classic sandwich, something that would raise more than a few eyebrows here at home, a maitake mushroom muffalata. Well, first off, can I tell you how much pushback I've had from friends in New Orleans seeing that my Taki mushroom buffalata? I, I just, they are not happy with me about that, but they also need to try it. So my Taki mushrooms being as delicious as they are, we roast up the my Taki so they're a little crispy. It's almost bacon-like. Roast them up with some scallions, some Cajun seasoning, and just put that into the sandwich. So remove all of the meat, put the my Takis in, 
my, my partner loves it even more than the regular one. And most people do too. They try it and they're like, I, they, they're trying not to offend me when they tell me, but they're like, I'm not going to lie. This tastes better than the meat one because there's just so much umami in there. And it's just, it's a hit. I, I love it. I'm so happy with that sandwich. Although he is now a Californian, Peterson has remained true to his Bayou State birthplace, offering chicken and andouille jambalaya and introducing seafood boils to the Sandy's pop-up clientele. With business gaining steam, I asked Peterson about his vision for the future of Sandy's SF. I think that's the difficult thing because actually um, from one of your previous episodes where you talked about the businessmen where they ended up getting the, the trademark before the business, that's kind of how I feel is that we got the sandwich before the business. <laughs> so we're kind of piecing it together right now. For me, I envision it as being fast, casual in New Orleans, but I also kind of want to put our twist on it. Like we just offered up a coleslaw where it's not your typical mayonnaise soupy coleslaw. We're throwing in a lot of fresh herbs. So it's kind of taking little pieces of bread spread pickle and throwing them in there. So house pickled red onions, pickled jalapenos. So we want to be light and fresh and enjoyable, but then some other things that we're going to do are going to be heavy. So it's just kind of like finding that balance of like, what do we want to eat where it's an influence of New Orleans, but it also has an influence of California. But then we are doing the boils. So the boils are so much fun because people just want to sit around and eat and drink and listen to good music. But I got to say the first one that we did would just crack me up because I dumped the shrimp on the table and everybody's just staring at it. And I'm just like, when are they going to, what are they? Oh yeah, I forgot. We're not, we're not in New Orleans, you know? So it's like, I always just kind of forget that, that people are like not super familiar with it yet, but they will be. That was Peterson Harder of the popular Mufalata pop-up Sandy's SF in San Francisco. You can find him on Instagram using the handle Sandy's underscore SF. What is a maitake mushroom? And why has it become a favorite among chefs? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions and more at louisiananorthshore.com.
here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is a maitake mushroom, and why has it become a favorite among chefs? Maitake mushrooms, also known as hen of the woods or ram's head, is an autumnal mushroom that grows naturally at the base of oak trees, especially dead or dying oaks. They can be foraged successfully in northern temperate forests throughout eastern Canada and the U.S. and are also found in China, northeastern Japan, and throughout Europe. The maitake is highly medicinal. It boosts the immune system to fight cancer and stabilizes blood sugars and blood pressure. Maitakes are best when cooked, revealing a strong, pleasant, earthy flavor when sautéed, roasted, deep-fried, and dried. Its crunchy, chewy texture makes it a satisfying meat substitute. As chefs experiment further with this magic mushroom, domestic production has dramatically increased, and maitakes are being farmed by some of the best mushroom producers across the world. Today, you can find them on restaurant menus across the state, enhancing dishes from yellowfin tuna to braised wagyu, or simply on their own with a pinch of salt and pepper. I'm Poppy Tooker, and my talky mushrooms make a perfect complement to some real Louisiana eats. I'm Marissa Nathan Gerson, a new New Orleanian and author of Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, A Single Woman's Guide to Grieving. Grief is all around us, but there are many different paths to finding peace. Author Marissa Nathan Gerson explores grief and the many ways to navigate death and loss in her new book, Forget Prayers, Bring Cake. The memoir details her experience dealing with the sudden death of her father, which was soon followed by a Mardi Gras parade accident that left her requiring knee surgery. As Marissa explained to us, the title of her book was born out of the observations she had when she was first confronting her father's illness. At what point did you decide that the answer in your grief and the situation you found yourself in would be cake. Well, the, the cake <laughs> cake was not my answer in the end, but it was definitely um, a provocateur. I was I had a friend, and all she did when she was homesick would bake. She was such a good baker, and my dad was sick, and my sister's birthday came, and I'd been asking for a cake forever, and one day my this woman showed up at our house with two cakes, one for my sister and one for my father. And one was an olive oil cake and one was a chocolate cake. And all I wanted was a carrot cake. And I remember that day, that was when I started to write the title of the book and the idea for the book. Because I I was so, in, everybody was praying for me. My father, this was like four days before he died. And I didn't know he was going to die, but things were really bad. And people kept offering prayers. And I was just so angry. I was like, I don't want... 
I don't want a prayer. I want a carrot cake. Like literally, I just want the cake. I don't want, I want to be the one that gets the cake. And then when my father did die, she came over with a carrot cake. And that cake was not, it wasn't just that it was sweet and delicious. It was that somebody loved me and showed it to me through food that I could then ingest into my body. Full disclosure, you and I have been friends since you first moved to New Orleans. And so consequently, I had a little bit of a back seat on some of the struggles of your first years here. Well, I think I met you right after, soon after arriving, and I only had a week here without a crisis. Um, he got sick a week after moving here. So I moved in September 2019 and slowly gathered community around me to support me through losing him and then the actual death. My first Mardi Gras after my dad died was, I think, two months later. And I just pushed through it thinking I was having fun, but I wasn't. I felt the sense of death. Like I was feeling it as I was dancing. It was La Boheme and I was wearing hiking boots and I didn't know the dance steps that everyone else was doing. I just went to the very front while everyone else was dancing. We had a really great moving float and I was handing out all the like goodies to the kids and everybody. This is pre-COVID. And there was a half of me that was like, I'm like a movie star. This is so cool. I felt like I was in heaven. And another part of me was like, get off the street. You don't want to be here. This doesn't feel safe. Your system is like not with you. Like it was like two parts of me were at war as I was dancing. And maybe I just twisted those two parts, but I heard a pop when I was dancing and I was sort of like, guys, my leg hurts. And I just, I think I should have just sat down, but I kept going because I was in the middle of a parade. And then right like two feet before the French Quarter, I, I, I don't know what it was, but I felt something in me. I like jumped up like I was going to fly almost and then squatted and then screamed and then keeled over into the crowd. And this poor older woman that I like leaned into, I looked her in the eye and I said, I'm not okay. They thought I had broken my patella, but I actually bucket tore and flipped my meniscus inside out and tore my ACL. So I was down for the count. And then I had my surgery the day that the city closed for the pandemic. So I sort of went into lockdown on the sofa. Ouch. Well, there are so many things I learned in this book. It was just magical. You make sure that the griever, who is the reader, knows that they have permission to eat the foods they love to eat and how important that food is when you grieve because food is love. That is how you see it. And also food can transport you to some semblance of home and it can be good medicine too. Well, I was raised by a cookbook writer. And so I grew up with a real understanding that food is family, food is culture, not not in a simple way, but a really broad way that food is history, that food carries everything in it. And then the Jewish rituals around food and death are very strong. And I remember when my grandmother died many, many, many years ago, we do something in Judaism called an unveiling ceremony where you don't have a headstone until a year later. And so when we took, when we did the unveiling where we gave my grandmother her headstone, my great aunt Raya showed up to the cemetery in New Jersey with in a Buick and she popped the trunk right after we finished the ceremony and she had laid 
all of these pastries across the bed of the trunk. She said, you got to eat the minute someone dies. She didn't know that it's like very much against Jewish law to eat in a cemetery. But also Shiva, the Jewish rituals of seven days of sitting, you bring food to the mourner and there's ideas that the mourner should sit lower than everyone else. The mourner should be fed, should never have to get up and that's not exactly how my seven days after grief went, but it's what it's what I was. I would have liked it. Um, but the idea is that that the food isn't just going to keep you alive, but it's also literally a way of ingesting community. I just find the practice of eating with others, especially as someone who lives alone. You know, if you show up to someone's house with a cake and you say you want to eat this together, the mood will lighten. Everyone will be grateful, except for I do have one neighbor um, in Mid City who said it's really rude to bring people baked goods or cake because sugar is poison, he says. Um, so don't bring cake to your sugar-free people. But He must not be a local guy. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not local, and he loves the gym. But there's history in cake here, and it's also a part of this practice of joy. And joy is medicine, and when you're miserable, eating, <laughs> eating cake is awesome, unless, again, unless it makes you sick, in which case don't do it. Marissa, would you explain for people who might not know what – Shiva is about and 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 how that mourning process progresses in the Jewish faith. Sure, yeah. First off, there's such a varied range of Jewish practice. You know, there's all the gradations, just like in Christianity. There's super secular reform, and then there's people who are ultra orthodox. Shiva means seven, and it's a seven day ritual where seven days is the amount of days of creation. I think they're sort of. Mimicking that is a week where you recede from creating, you recede from action. And if you're really religious, you would do nothing. Like you wouldn't go to work, you wouldn't, I don't think you're supposed to even bathe. Like you're really supposed to just be allowed to fall apart. And then you're supposed to have your community gather. And in a real traditional home, you would sit and people would bring you food. And then in the evening and in the morning and at, you would do morning, afternoon, and evening, the prayer for the dead. And the prayer for the dead is the Kaddish. And the Kaddish isn't what you'd think. It just declares, like, God is on high, God on high. Like, you just proclaim on repeat in front of 10 people minimum this reminder of this thing above you that might never go away if you cling to it, even though death has ruptured your life. You know, it's, it's an antidepressant. It's a very simple practice. I, I also believe that these practices are only as effective as those who choose to participate together in them. It's really hard in the modern when we don't all share faith or we don't all share practices or we don't all share a spiritual leaning. You know, like thinking about second lines versus me, I, I've been thinking a lot about, well, why is why are second lines such remarkable grieving rituals and I couldn't dance without getting my knee ripped that night? And I think part of it is practice and community adhesion. Like I, in that that evening, I had guilt. I wasn't. I was taught not to dance for a year after my dad died. I was taught to stay away from joy, so I had all this guilt. And I think guilt and shame will break your leg um, pretty quick. And I think one of the things that's beautiful about second lines is going deep, deep, deep down into the sadness, and then it's almost like you dive back up into joy. And it's this sort of swan dive that I definitely wasn't taught how to do. <laughs> Well, goodness knows you were taught about food as medicine and love. But, um, Marissa, you keep going through the book. You keep pursuing your concepts here. And by Chapter 9, you let us know that your title really isn't what you want. 
Um, it's not about forget prayers, bring cake. By chapter 9, it's actually pray. Yeah. Well, the title was tongue-in-cheek when I was frustrated because someone – I was, like, being a teenager and someone – was praying for me on the phone and kept telling me they were praying. And I was just looking at these cakes that were not the cake for me. And I wanted my cake. Um, but I also really believe in the power of prayer. I know that prayer works. I know that centering oneself to something bigger than themselves works. I know that the city believes in prayer. And I have a lot of friends who come from church and church that harmed them. And so they really hate the word prayer and they hate the word God. And they don't like me putting them back in that paradigm. But the prayer section talks about you know, some people like to go kayak on the bayou for their prayer and other people will go to church for their prayer and other people bake, you know, or I know a woman in this neighborhood who does murals and that's her prayer. And prayer just to me doesn't have to be about God. I think it means like a repetitive practice that brings you bigger than this moment. So you realize that death can come and go and that you're still able to like this thing that you attach to is forever. It could be your higher power. It could be whatever you want it to be. The most important part of prayer is it's free. You can be rich, you can be poor, and it, and it like it kicks the class divides butt. Like you don't have to have that as a as a dividing factor. So, I do believe it's really important. Well, fitting in with prayer, one of the solutions that you come to offer are um, rituals, making rituals. I've been empowered to make my own meaning when I want to, and that's been a big part of my Jewish practice and. I think that almost any religious adherent is going to come up against guilt and shame when they can't do what they think they're supposed to do and feeling like a sinner and feeling like you messed up. And I know for me, having my dad die with this ritual, I was told, especially by him, I was told my whole life, I, you know, when your parent dies, you go every day for a year, for 11 months, and you say this prayer with a group of people. And when he died, I couldn't, A, because there wasn't a daily practice here. And I also couldn't meet with people. I couldn't invite my own friends over. It was COVID. So I had to innovate. And I think finding permission to innovate and finding permission to be religious or to be practicing or to make things and do it your own way is so, so empowering. One of the things is that you do something and you do it for a year and you make practices that make it so that you own your own time and you own your own cycle. And I, I find that to be so powerful. Well, Marissa, there is so much power and all the other wonderful wisdom to be found between the pages of this, your first book. So congratulations. Thank you for having me, Poppy. That was Marissa Nathan Gerson, author of Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, A Single Woman's Guide to Grieving. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Looking for some summertime fun? The last Sunday of every month, we're hosting a Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch at Tujac's Restaurant. This family-friendly event includes three courses, five drag queens, and of course, bottomless mimosas. 
Reservations may be made online and by calling 504-525-8676. And our friends at Octavia Books are hosting a special talk and book signing for my latest collaborative effort, Tony Mandina's Kitchen, at 6 p.m. on Thursday, June 2nd. I'll be leading the discussion, and Colette Mandina will be serving their famous meatballs. Don't miss the delicious fun. You can catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team, Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.